Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour and looking at some of the stories that are making the news here in Ireland and around the world. Coming up on today's show, amid alarm in the UK about rampant food inflation, the government there has plans for supermarkets to place a voluntary price cap. Sound familiar? Well, it's received a mixed reaction in the UK and here to take us through it all today, I'm going to be joined from London by Lucy Fisher. And she's the Whitehall correspondent for the Financial Times, so stay tuned for that. And staying in London, Mark Paul is the new Irish Times London correspondent. He's going to be joining us to give us his take on the latest goings on in the Conservative Party as they face into a new COVID inquiry next week. They're also dealing with the issues of immigration, huge interest rate increases and obviously that issue of inflation. All are conspiring against Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at the moment. And finally today, a new social media showdown is building up ahead of steam as Jack Dorsey gains ground with a new platform. It's called Blue Sky and it's an alternative to Twitter. But how can you get on it and will it work? Well, I'll be joined by an expert in digital media to give us all a head start. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, we're going to start with that issue of food pricing in the UK. Indeed, it's something that we've been discussing here in Ireland a lot too. But there are some potential solutions coming out of the UK government this week that have sparked some debate among politicians, retailers and economists alike. And here to tell us all about it, I'm joined now by Lucy Fisher, who's a Whitehall correspondent for the Financial Times. Lucy, you're very welcome to News Talk. Hi there. Now, Lucy, before we get into the detail of what they're proposing, maybe we just look at a little bit at the context of the inflation figures around food pricing in the UK. What is it like over there at the moment? Well, it's pretty horrendous. Um, the uh, official data for April um, has come out in recent days and uh, it showed that the headline rate uh, of inflation in the UK uh, is coming down um, now below um, 9%. Um, But underneath that, it showed that core inflation was still rising and that food and uh, non-alcoholic drink inflation is rampant and remaining stubbornly high at 19.1% on on its uh, annual inflation rate. So, you know, food uh, in the UK uh, remains, you know, uh, about a a fifth more expensive Mm. than this time um, last year. And I think there is this real sense of alarm that is spread through Whitehall on how that is uh, impacting struggling Britons who, uh, you know, are, are facing the squeeze on many fronts, including their energy bills. Mm. And just to compare like with like, our inflation figures here in Ireland also came down, the headline figures uh, down to 7.2%, but food again up by a massive 13%. Now that's still not as much as it's rising in the UK. So let's stick with your your own figures and, and talk a little bit about the proposals that the government has sort of put forward to try and deal with this. So just give us a sense of what type of plans they are putting forward to try and, and deal with the, the pricing issue on food in particular. Well, what they are looking at at the moment, and they stress that this is still at drawing board stage, is a voluntary um, scheme with the major supermarkets for them to cap staple items, uh, foodstuffs like bread and milk, um, and fix the prices. Now, um, the government's are very keen to stress that it's not um, you know, a mandatory scheme. They aren't returning 
to uh, sort of Ted Heath's um, price controls of the 1970s, which is what the Labour Party has accused them of doing. Um, but there is some discussion that it could mirror a, a scheme introduced in France in March in which supermarkets were invited to um, identify which of their own items they wanted to either fix the price of or reduce it even um, in recognition that, um, you know, if supermarkets look to their own brand products over which they have more com- control on pricing, um, that then they can they can then choose what, what they want to say will, will stay fixed. So it, it could be something um, like that. But interestingly, it has led to quite quite a backlash, and it's certainly split the Conservative Party. Um, you know, on the on the libertarian free market wing, a lot of concern that this is a very unconservative proposal to try and interfere with the market, um, and and also among economists who say, um, you know, look for a start, supermarkets run on very slim margins. You know, we're not seeing greedflation in um, the food sector. We're not, we're not seeing prices high um, due to supermarkets being um, greedy or, or, or profit gouging. Um, it's just that they are facing, you know, uh, very um, heightened costs when it comes to their own energy, transport um, and labor costs. So there, there are concerns on that front. There's also um, the objection raised that if price um, caps um, were set, then what you could also end up seeing happen is retailers could price upwards to the cap and not reduce prices further as commodity prices fall, because we know that um, a, a lot of those those costs I mentioned around energy and how that impacts on transport costs, they are falling uh, across the West. Um, and so commodity prices should fall, and that should see a knock-on um, uh, price falls in the supermarkets in coming mm. months. Yeah, Lucy, if a big fear that uh, a price cap would eventually become a, a price floor and that people wouldn't actually benefit from the proper reductions when they do happen. But lots to unpick in what you've just told us. Let's start with The Economist's view of all of this. Another um, thing I read about in the piece, that the, the really good piece that you wrote during the week about this was that um, economists kind of say that even if you're in some bizarre land where the supermarket chains suddenly start to agree with the the government for optics reasons to curb the or cap the price of stable food goods, that they will simply just put those prices onto other goods. Is that a real concern here? Well, certainly um, that is what um, the warnings we've seen coming out of um, France, um, Leclerc, uh, a major French supermarket, a hypermarket, said that it wouldn't agree to the French voluntary scheme for exactly that reason. It said, look, we want to keep our prices as low as we can across the board. And what would happen is we, if we fix, you know, certain staple goods prices, then we have to, because, you know, we run on slim margins, we'd have to raise prices across other goods. So they thought it was a sort of inappropriate intervention. And I think it goes back to that that sort of um, idea that many sort of um, uh, classical conservatives have about, you know, the best way to bring down prices is through, uh, you know, universal competition with the free hand of the market um, acting and, and without the government sort of distorting prices with uh, interventions such as the one that ministers are talking about. And is that the intervention that the, is causing the problem inside the Conservative Party, that these ideas that you go back to the 1970s and try and control the market is sort of an anathema to what they should, and indeed particularly Rishi Sunak, should be doing at the moment? Well, look, I think, you know, I've got to reflect the fact that the party is split. You mm. know, I also spoke to others, including um, uh, Sir John Hayes, you know, an influential 
veteran um, former minister who, who uh, chairs the Common Sense Group of Conservative MPs, who said it was a great idea. I think he really recognised that his constituents are struggling um, to pay the food bills and, and with the general cost of living crisis at the moment. Um, and he said, you know, for him, you know, the government should see if a voluntary scheme works. And if not, you know, they should think about going further, perhaps with something mandatory. Mm. So there is a, a plethora of opinions um, on this matter. Um, but I do think there is this this sense that, you know, it is a growing political problem for the government. And we've seen that with um, a swathe of meetings that have happened during the month of May. Rishi Sunak and Therese Coffey, the Environment Secretary, have met with farmers. Uh, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has met with food manufacturers. John Glenn, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, has met with um, the supermarkets um, in order to try and discuss any ways in which to try and bring prices down to ease the cost on households. Mm. I've also seen the very aptly named Mark Spencer, though, Minister for Food, saying that he he, he doesn't want to ask uh, retailers and producers to initiate a voluntary cap. Yeah, which again, I think just speaks to um, the, the, the split of opinion, you know, at the highest echelons of the party, mm. you know, right on, on the front bench. It is not, you know, wholesale agreement about this kind of um, in, intervention. So, um, let's see if it gets sort of uh, further than the drawing board stage. Um, the government has obviously flown a kite on this. It has received a heavy backlash, um, including from opposition parties, from front and back benches, from economists. Um, it may be the, the, the type of scheme that they now start to quietly shelve or the kind of thing that they hope by raising this um, this sort of flare that that will you know, provide the mood music for supermarkets to sort of take action um, themselves, mm. but um, certainly um, the supermarkets represented by the British Retail Consortium, um, the, the response so far has been pretty angry because they think, you know, the government isn't recognising that many stores have already acted to fix the prices of, of staples. And, and I, I can say for myself as a shopper in, in supermarkets, I do note, I do note on the shelves, you go to pick up a bag of rice or um, or pasta and so forth, and, and, and there are sort of, you know, the notices on the shelves saying that the store has price fixed it um, to, to keep the costs down of such basics. So mm. there's a sort of um, a, a resentment um, in, in um, the response from supermarkets who also say that the government is at the moment presiding over a model of new regulation, which is another reason um, the prices are being kept high in the food sector. And they say instead of um, meddling with these kind of state interventions, um, the government would do better to cut red tape um, that would allow supermarkets to slash their prices. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and I'm talking to Lucy Fisher from the Financial Times about food pricing in the UK. Um, I heard during the week the head of ASDA talking about this issue um, fairly vociferously to pick up on the point that that you've just made, Lucy, there about the increased bureaucracy and regulation that's being imposed on British businesses. Um, Do you think that there's any risk that, you know, there'll be a conflict, a backlash from the business that won't do this? Because actually these escalating food prices have very far reaching consequences, especially for vulnerable households, of which there are a growing number um, Constantly in the UK and poorer families who are expected and will be hit harder by these rising food prices. Could they ultimately, you know, uh, fall between the gap of government and big business? Well, I think that there is concern about that and about, you know, food bank um, usage. We've heard in recent months tales of, you know, people in, you know, 
um, well-respected um, professions like nursing um, having to resort to food bank uh, usage in, in some um, circumstances due to um, inflation. Um, I think the problem is there is a sort of recognition that depending on, on the foodstuff in question, you end up squeezing someone else if mm. you force supermarkets to, to fix the prices and take take an example like milk. Um, you know, dairy farmers in the UK would already complain that their margins are very, very squeezed. So if the supermarkets were forced to price fix in an era of inflation and forcibly sort of reduced the amount of money that they were giving to the farmers, then that creates another um, set of, uh, you know, disadvantaged people in this situation. So uh, as ever with these sort of um, chains, it, it, it's not easy to tweak um, one part of the chain without having um, potentially unintended consequences on another part. Mm. We had something very similar to all of this happen here in Ireland a couple of weeks ago. Our government called in all of the retailers, gave them a, a good finger wagging about hmm. uh, what they were doing and the consequences it was having on households. But it actually became very apparent very quickly that there was nothing that the government could do. And as you say, you saw all the signs in the supermarkets saying that they've reduced prices. I wonder if they're factoring through. Lucy, you're a very seasoned uh, observer of politics in uh, the UK and, and you see the wider political landscape and the consequences of something like this for a government. Where do you see this going? Do you think they're serious about it? Do you think there will actually be changes as a result of this? Well, let's see. I mean, I think that on on the one hand, um, the government might decide if, if it's a voluntary scheme and it doesn't look like supermarkets will willingly sign up to it. There's no point um, in in you know pursuing it. Um, uh, on the other hand, they may find that even making the sort of public messaging about asking supermarkets to sign up to this kind of scheme is useful to try and show voters that they are at least trying mm. to do something, trying to find solutions. Um, to stop the price of food, um, you know, continuing to rise at such a fast pace. But certainly there is um, recognition on Whitehall, in Westminster, in Downing Street, that inflation, you know, is such a huge problem, um, both for governments um, wanting to sort of carry out policies that, you know, cost money um, to, um, uh, to, to pursue, uh, and for households and voters, particularly when we could be as little as a year away from election now. So, there's a huge deal of recognition about how much of a problem inflation is, not just um, food inflation, but all kinds of inflation, um, uh, but not necessarily many kind of obvious solutions on, on how to try and curb it. Absolutely. Well, as I said, it's an issue that's facing us here in Ireland as well. So consumers and political observers will be watching on with interest. But for now, Lucy, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights with us today. That was Lucy Fisher, Whitehall correspondent for the Financial Times. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, lots of Twitter users are rushing to join Blue Sky. It's a social platform founded by Jack Dorsey, a founding member of Twitter. And we're going to find out all about it after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, as Twitter, under the stewardship of Elon Musk, continues to flounder with losses in ad revenues this year, forecast to be in and around 
40%. The social media company's co-founder and former CEO Jack Dorsey has been busy at work himself with a new toy of his own. It's called Blue Sky Social. But what is it? How does it work? And will it last? Well, we're joined by programme favourite Chris Stokel-Walker, who's a freelance journalist and communication specialising in digital culture. Chris, you're very welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Now, what exactly is Blue Sky? What is the platform like when you compare it to Twitter? It is um, it is much more anarchic. The best way that I can describe it, and I'm, I'm conscious that this may fly over the heads of lots of listeners because some of them may not spend their lives online like I do in a very sad way. Um, it's like Twitter was 10 years ago. Mm. And by that, I mean... People feel much more willing to be themselves, to express themselves in the way that they choose. They are much happier. They don't feel like they're being kind of constrained. And that, I think, is because it is such the, an early stage for, for Blue Sky. But it's also um, in part because of the way that it's been set up and presented as kind of an anti-Twitter. So that's how it is for the users. There are some fundamental differences, which I'm, I'm sure we can get onto in terms of the underlying technology and mm. how this is designed to grow. But in terms of its kind of spirit, it's just a lot more friendly, a lot more weird and a lot more exciting in a kind of anarchic way. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a bit more like Twitter was, I suppose, in its early days. And I was mm. trying to think of a, an analogy. Maybe it's like we're all on Spotify, but now we're buying vinyl again. Yeah, and it, it's, it's interesting because it, it's you know, the early days of Blue Sky were kind of typified by very, very odd things. There's lots of weird inside jokes. There was a kind of phase in the very early stages where people felt comfortable enough to kind of post um, relatively risque photos of themselves, not mm. outright pornography, but they, they just, they felt, it was kind of like a weird hippie Woodstock 1969 style uh, <laughs> way of describing things. I think it's probably the best way that I can get to it. Okay, so I tried to board it and it, it had lovely clouds and uh, you were asked for an email and you get an email back or a verification number and then you're one of the lucky few so I guess that's part of its appeal but we'll come into all of that in a minute for the moment I just want to s- stick back to the, the original question of what is it and Jack Dorsey, just explain to us all who Jack Dorsey is why is he important because he was also involved in Twitter in the early stages he was. He's integral to uh, the founding of Twitter originally back in the mid 2000s. So he was essentially one of the co-founders and for a long time, the CEO of Twitter and has kind of uh, remained looming over the platform a bit like Banquo's ghost ever since. And um, he he has not been CEO of Twitter for a little while. Previous to Elon Musk, there was a CEO called Parag Agrawal. But what Jack Dorsey said went essentially on Twitter, and, and that was in part, I think, why Elon Musk now owns it, is that Jack Dorsey um, felt like Twitter was was not going in the right direction. He wanted to start something different. He, he felt that you know Twitter had been captured by commerce a little bit too much, and that it was too centralised under one person's control. So he kind of drifted away. Elon Musk came into the 
picture took it over jack dorsey essentially endorsed it and the reason why i think is because dorsey's mind was distracted by developing uh, blue sky so blue sky is a decentralized social network uh, it, it runs using a thing called the authenticated transfer protocol now that gets very very complicated very very quickly but the idea is that you can in the future set up your own version of blue sky away from centralized control at the minute we're all engaged in kind of a beta test mm. of blue sky which is centrally controlled but the idea is we'll all be able to kind of detach from this central hub running our own versions of it and the idea behind that is if you don't like what the person running it says you can create your own version yeah and that, that's back to dorsey's original idea and we're not going to go down the road of talking about protocols like we did the last time because I got into awful <laughs> trouble with my producer over it. But yeah, that was the original theory that you could have these standalone platforms to find communities that you like. But as you say there, um, Jack Dorsey originally supportive of Musk's takeover. Is he having a bit of seller's remorse now because Twitter has 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 not uh, been successful under Musk's tutelage, has it? Yeah, it's not been successful at all. So it started off with 8,000 staff members when he took over, now down to 1,000. Uh, we saw a pretty catastrophic launch of a US presidential bid through Twitter Spaces, which is the audio room chat version of Twitter by Ron DeSantis. So he essentially was unable mm. to, to launch his bid for the US presidency because of technical issues, which were brought about by Musk essentially firing all of the staff and then being ill-prepared for when the computers go boom. Um, and, and so I think probably you know Jack Dorsey looks on with a little bit of regret, but I think you know he he seems um, from you know everything that we know about him pretty calm, pretty zen, and he did think that Elon Musk was kind of the person that would save Twitter. I think probably he he maybe has regrets about saying that now because. Certainly he hasn't actually gone in the opposite direction. But I think he's the sort of person that kind of just washes his hands of something and lets kind of zen calmness wash over him. So he'll be looking at Musk kind of running around like a headless chicken and thinking, well, I, I don't have to do that. So mm. I'll just kind of relax and I'm happy with where I am. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Chris Stokel-Walker, who's a freelance journalist and communicator specialising in digital culture. So you mentioned earlier, Chris, that this was a beta service. Can you just try in a non-technical way to talk mm. us through what that means for us as users and why it's being tested under a beta system? It's a big giant test, essentially. So it means that um, the product isn't finished and so any wrinkles with it uh, ought to be forgiven. Uh, it's an attempt to try and say, look, this could go catastrophically wrong, there could be errors, but we are... Uh, letting you peek behind the curtain a little bit early. The reason why they do that is because, uh, ironically, the same reason why Elon Musk's attempts to get Ron, Rob De Ron DeSantis to announce his presidency failed is that you need to test these mm. things in the wild with real numbers in order to prove that they work. So uh, we know that you know Blue Sky has you know, tens of thousands of users now, which it didn't have even just a couple of months ago. And so as these users scale and this beta test happens, it means that they can roll out features, basically kick the tires a little bit and make sure it works. And it is 
interesting. Um, you know, the idea of a beta test and you know, using something live that is still kind of being changed, almost like flying a plane while still trying to build it, mm. might seem a bit scary to some people. But you know, Gmail, which is one of the most commonly used web email services, actually started out as a beta and was in beta for years as they developed new tools. So it's yeah. kind of a, a way of asking for forgiveness from their users. Yeah. And look, under that system, there's another very helpful sort of marketing ploy because growth is controlled. This idea of artificial artificial scarcity is not a bad marketing ploy, but it's not without its dangers either um, because it can't grow that way. So presumably they'll get a, a, to a point where they are tested it, they're happy to board people and they have this buzz talking about it now, um, but that eventually they'll get it to a point where they're happy and then there'll be a similar type of launch as there was for Twitter way back in the day. Yeah, and I think that this is the interesting thing. At the minute, Blue Sky is essentially an invite system. Mm. So you have the VIPs who are behind the velvet rope who have passes, invites for additional users. You get one roughly after two weeks of being on the platform and you can invite a friend uh, and then they can come in, they spend two weeks and they can invite a friend, which all makes it seem very kind of elite and very interesting. And obviously people covet stuff that they they can't get access to. Mm. Um, But it's that fine balancing act of eventually they will open this up and it will be a free for all. But do they get to the point of feeling comfortable enough to do that before the kind of artificial buzz around this platform runs out. Because at the minute, it's the hot invite, the hot ticket. But, you know, eventually that will wear off. And it's whether or not they get their ducks in order before that happens, if they're actually going to succeed. And do you have, are you on the Blue Sky app at the moment? I am, yeah. So what does it look like? Does it look like Twitter? It looks exactly like Twitter, basically. So you have, um, in the same way that on on the the Twitter homepage, uh, you have two different tabs, one called the For You and one called the Following Feed. On Blue Sky, you have two tabs. One's called the Following Feed, which is the same as Twitter, which is who you follow on the platform. And one's called the What's Hot Feed. Now, that is essentially the same sort of thing. It's an algorithmically dictated feed of content based on what the app thinks you're interested in. Uh, You look at the screen and at the bottom, there are four icons, a home icon, which looks pretty much the same as the Twitter one, a search icon, which looks again, pretty much the same as any search icon, a notification bell, which looks exactly the same as Twitter, and a profile. Uh, button, which looks, again, the same as Twitter, and and that option also to uh, tweet, or in the case of Blue Sky, it's called Skeet, which is a a long-standing little in-joke that they have. Uh, It looks exactly the same, essentially. Okay, so it's just really trying to mirror that experience and start all over again. Now, when Musk took over at Twitter, a lot of conscientious objectors uh, defected over to another platform, which was called Mastodon. what happened to that? Did that ever take off? What were the issues that, like, it's definitely not as successful as people were talking about at the time, but why wasn't it, you know, uh, an early challenger to Twitter? I think it suffered from um, a bit of a challenge in terms of barrier to entry. Um, one of the, the good things about uh, Blue Sky is that you can essentially just download the app and go. It's the same sort of process as Twitter. Um, with Mastodon, 
they didn't have that kind of centralized initial test. So on, on Blue Sky, you can set up your own server, essentially, and register your username against it, which is a very techy, complicated thing to do. On Mastodon, you pretty much have to do that by default. There was no real centralized option. You could have people who were providing servers for you to sign up to, but you had to make a decision. It was uh, you know, kind of like... Um, not having an individual strong brand name supermarket to shop at, but instead having to kind of wander into multiple different shops, take a look around and say, well, do I like the look of this shop? Do I like the look of the shopkeeper? Do I think this produce is fresh before you buy it? So Mastodon suffered in some ways from being too decentralized. Mm. Um, it was kind of the very opposite of Twitter. Uh, Blue Sky is kind of a halfway house between. It's a little bit decentralized and it can become more decentralized if you want to kind of turn the knob up to 11. Or you can kind of keep it relatively centralized, simple, the sort of thing that your parents or your grandparents can access in the same way that they do Twitter. Mm. I read somewhere that uh, Blue Skies are aiming for tech bros and clout chasers, which I think is a great uh, term, similar to Twitter again. Who is Mastodon aimed at? Was it more techy? I think it's kind of less tech bros and more the people who allow the tech bros to have their bro behaviour. The kind of the second rank of people who are actually keeping the websites running, who are doing all of the hard tech stuff behind the scenes while the tech bros party. So you've you've been lucky enough, one of the lucky ones to board Blue Sky, having used the, the platform. Do you think it's going to work for Jack Dorsey? I think it might. Um, in large part because of the frustrations around Twitter. Mm. So you know, people dislike Twitter a lot. Blue Sky is a kind of alternative and it's an easy leap to make. Uh, the content on there is quite engaging and quite interesting. And so I can imagine a future where this is successful. Um, I do think that it has to kind of uh, manage the transition from beta to kind of a free-for-all very, very carefully because that does come with its own risks. When you start to lessen the curation and the kind of limits on who can come in, you start to replicate some of the issues that Twitter has in terms of maybe some unpalatable points of view. But I, I think it does stand a chance of success in large part because, as you mentioned, it's those kind of thought leaders, the influencers and the tech bros that are there. And they have been allowed to kind of set the standard, I suppose, of what this should look like. And that makes it quite welcoming for people. Mm. You mentioned there the Ron DeSantis campaign uh, and the disastrous launch that happened on Twitter. I mean, there's a confluence of two negatives coming together. Elon Musk, you know, in in desperate trouble with Twitter and also DeSantis not doing well against Trump. This is not going to help his campaign, is it? No, not at all. I think that you know, early perceptions are really vital with this and the fact that this was kind of uh, a complete disaster uh, really does stymie growth very early on. It, it makes it very easy for Donald Trump, who we presume, I guess, is the, the, the front runner in the Republican uh, Party, to, to basically say that this is a failure. Uh, you know, he can say, I have the control of Twitter, I am the one that is all-powerful on it, and I have this huge um, relevance around the world, and, and this guy essentially can't organise something as simple as a conversation on social media. So it looks very low rent, low budget, and I think is kind of manna from heaven for Donald Trump. Indeed. Just before I let you go, are you on Donald Trump's um, platform, Truth Social? 
And that's the one that I have not signed up to and well, that, don't really have much intention of doing so. That might be a badge of honour. Anyway, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to explain all of that to us today. That was Chris Stokel-Walker, who's a freelance journalist and a communicator specialising in digital culture. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. And after the break, criticism of Rishi Sunak gathers ground. The COVID inquiry, immigration, interest rates and inflation are all conspiring against him. Mark Paul of the Irish Times joins us after the break. You're welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. Now, just when Rishi Sunak thought he was beginning to stop the Conservative Party from falling deeper into the mire, a familiar face re-entered stage right to remind him that the UK is still not rid of Boris Johnson. He hit the news hard last week again, whether it was the announcement that he and Carrie are about to have another baby or his high-profile visit to Las Vegas, or whether or not he is to be investigated for more breaches of the COVID rules. The former Prime Minister was back stalking UK politics and here to tell us all about what's happening over there. I'm delighted to be joined now by Mark Paul, who's the London correspondent of the Irish Times. Mark, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Thanks, Mandy. Great to be here. Now, congratulations on the new position. It must be a great time to be over in London covering politics and indeed the country when there's so many things happening. But on a personal level, what what is it like to relocate to London in 2023? Well, look, I mean, I've moved over to London at a really, really interesting time. And when we had all the turmoil and the the, the, the sort of the, the trouble that the Conservative Party in Britain had and just before Christmas. And then I came in in January. I moved over at a time when I suppose Britain was, uh, I suppose it's having a little bit of a conversation with itself um, mm-hmm. and a little bit of a reckoning with itself after Brexit and after uh, uh, all of the all of the difficulties that it's had. So it's very, very interesting to watch. I mean, Westminster, where I'm based most of the time, I mean, look, that that's always an interesting place to be and um, but it's particularly interesting now watching the political dynamics unfold as I mean look the Conservatives look ahead to the possibility of defeat in the next election you've got the Labour Party looking at the possibility of victory in the next election um, and, and and you have all of these dynamics and things swirling around and um, so it's really really interesting to be here it's a really really interesting time to observe what's going on in the country and the whole country not just in Westminster um, and uh, and look I'm looking forward to the next few years. Yeah, well, we we certainly wish you uh, every good fortune in your new position. I'm sure you'll be brilliant at it. And don't worry, we'll be on the case and looking for you to come over and explain to us exactly what's happening from time to time. Um, but earlier in the programme, Mark, I spoke to Lucy Fisher from the Financial Times. She's the Whitehall correspondent there. We were talking about the issue of food inflation in particular and how the government were trying to get their arms around that and just getting a sense from her about all of the other bigger issues that the government are trying to deal with. And Rishi Sunak really has you know, inherited, a, you know, a, a really difficult, difficult uh, landscape politically. Uh, and then, as you rightly point out, in addition to all the problems he's trying to deal with, he has this spectre of Boris Johnson, the captain of chaos, still looming over him, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not an easy hand that that Rishi Sunak has been dealt. But look, I mean, as the cliche goes, you can only um, um, play the hand that, that that you have been dealt. So, I mean, a lot goes down to how he plays it as well. I mean, look, obviously, when Rishi Sunak came in late last year, he came in on the back of an unprecedented period of turmoil, um, and 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 that sort of continued through January. Um, and he didn't look all that steady himself in January. Mm-hmm. I mean, his handling of Nadim Zahawi, the the, the the sacking of the Tory chairman over his taxes. I mean, he was accused of dithering over that. 
Um, but he, he, he things started to improve after that. He had what I thought was a pretty good March and April. I mean, that came on the back of um, agreeing the Windsor framework at the end of uh, at the end of February. And um, he also published um, tough new immigration rules. And, and he looked to be steadying the ship with this sort of, you know, managerialism and this sort of grown up politics. This sort of you know the sort of anti Boris Johnson in a way by doing things by the book. And that seemed to be paying off for him. I mean, he had improved relations with the EU, but there's a lot of problems now building up for him again. And uh, for the country and also for the Conservative Party, I mean, um, you know, we, we mentioned inflation there, which obviously throws a lot of his, um, his his economic plans up in the air because inflation isn't coming down as fast as, as, as it should be. But the big problem for Rishi Sunak and, and everything comes down to immigration. I mean, that is the problem that he was brought in to solve. That is the problem that Brexit was supposed to solve. That is the problem that Conservative Party voters wanted to solve, whether it's illegal migration um which is which is colloquially known over here as the small boats basically um you know boats of, of illegal immigrants coming over from france and landing on the beaches of southeast england or whether it's legal migration um, which recent figures shows has actually doubled since before brexit and um, so um immigration is where rishi sunak's um, leadership of the conservative party and of the country and the government that's where it'll stand and fall his his performance on that i think uh, and and at the moment he's finding that a little bit difficult and then of course as you say yourself Boris Johnson comes along and uh, and throws his name uh, thing into the mix and 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 you know look the, the problems are stacking up for Sunak I think yeah somebody referred to him last week as political Calpol uh, he just comes in and calms everything down but actually will he ever do anything and a sense that this government is sort of flailing around now and and, and in a space where they're almost admitting that they can't get their agenda done so now he's just trying to manage the political process but let's just talk about Boris for a second um what is the Boris relationship with the COVID inquiry that's due to start this week? Um, he's been involved in a lot of wrangling over text messages and WhatsApps and diaries. Where's all that at for him at the moment? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson has just, you know, kind of sprung out like the thing from the deep again to sort of uh, as this spectre over the Conservative Party to, uh, uh, you know, in, in relation to COVID and so on. And, you know, the Conservatives and the government and maybe Britain as a whole thought they were done with Boris and COVID and all of that stuff. But it's back again. And two things have really happened um, in the last week to 10 days um, to, to put Boris and COVID back at the centre of the political agenda. The first one is that his own government appointed lawyers were going through his ministerial diaries um, and they found notes that suggested a whole load of other um, and previously unknown meetings that he had held during periods of COVID restrictions at Checkers, which is his, his booking of the Prime Minister's Buckinghamshire retreat and, and also at number 10 Downing Street um, and that and that they hadn't previously been examined in previous inquiries. Um, so they passed those details over to the Cabinet Office who then passed it on to the police um, to investigate Thames Valley Police um, who would investigate anything down in Checkers and of course the London Metropolitan police who would investigate anything in 10 Downing Street and of course Boris Johnson went wild over that mm. and being reported to the police again he thinks it's some sort of a stitch up he called it or, or his certain people around him were calling it a stitch up and um, by, uh, by 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 Sunak and by and by senior members of the government the second separate thing that has happened in relation to Boris and COVID um, in the last week is that um, the, the government's are ongoing official inquiry into COVID is led by Baroness Hallett um, and it has requested um, all of Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages and also 24 of his own personal notebooks that he held um, and whilst he was uh, Prime Minister 
minister. Um, and um, um, the government, um, and well, the cabinet office and specifically number 10 are prevaricating over this. Um, and, and, and obviously it's, it's, it's not a request that, that, that they were happy to get um, because um, there's a sort of a precedent there. You know, if you hand mm. over Boris Johnson's WhatsApps, maybe you have to hand over Rishi Sunak's as well. And that's possibly at the heart of the government's thinking. So all of the questions around Boris and his WhatsApps and his messages and COVID, that's all come back again. And, and internal private communications uh, within government. That's all come back again to sort of haunt Rishi Sunak. And, and, and you know, he, he was sort of in a guy, Boris Johnson said he was the guy to get Brexit done. Rishi Sunak sort of, you could argue he was a guy who wanted to get COVID done and get all, mm. all, get all of that sort of stuff done. But it's back now, it's back on the agenda and he doesn't want it there. Yeah, those issues for the, the WhatsApp messages and the release of information are actually quite serious because of the issues around cabinet confidentiality, collective responsibility. So we might kind of look at it and go, oh, I'd love to see Boris Johnson's, you know, WhatsApp messages with all the people like Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak himself. But actually, there will be very serious considerations on this. But I, um, just just that, that relationship again, and you call it a spectre uh, of Boris looming over Rishi Sunak. That relationship is, it's, it's kind of so difficult to untangle at the moment. You've got Boris's um, honours list as well. That's a that's a going to be a big call for for Rishi Sunak coming up. Can you talk us through what's what, what's likely or what could happen there? Yeah, well, I mean, Boris Johnson put in a very, very lengthy um, um, list. All, all outgoing prime ministers in in, in Britain um, um, are entitled to submit a resignation honours list, um, and where you know they'll 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 you know appoint you know various people who are good to them or people who they think deserved it, um, and, and will will get honours such as a dame or a knighthood or a CBE or an OBE or, or whatever it is. And Boris Johnson's um, um, resignation honours list was as you know it, it, it was as lengthy as the day is long. You know, it was. Uh, it, it was an enormous thing. I mean, at one stage, his own father um, was proposed um, um, for an honour in it. But people like um, like um, real Boris acolytes like Nadine Dorries, um, um, an MP, an outgoing MP. I mean, she's supposedly on the list. And um, um, the, the the incoming or the the, the sitting prime minister. Um, or the sitting government um, has to approve the outgoing prime minister's um, resignation honours list, um, and and Boris Johnson's really was sort of pulling people's leg to extent with with the amount of honours that he was giving out and the people to whom he was suggesting they should go. I mean, you know, some of his young advisors who would have been mm. in their twenties and thirties, um, and, and so it was a big question for Rishi Sunak: Do I approve this or do I not? If I if if I approve it, you know, I mean, this is Boris's dodgy list going through. If I don't approve it, um, um, it's, I'm picking a fight with my pre or one of my predecessors and he doesn't want to fight with Boris Johnson because a fight with Boris Johnson means a fight with a whole wing of his own party. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what would happen, Mark, if some of those people on the list like Nadine Doris or Alak Sharma, those type of people, would, would that trigger a by-election or what would happen there if 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 they got the honours or indeed if they were refused the honours, are there any consequences politically for him? Well, see, this is where Boris's honours list, uh, this is where it all interacted with the COVID stuff. A lot of people around Boris Johnson, a lot of his his allies, they suspect that particularly when it came to handing over his his meetings to the police, that this was some sort of a plot by Rishi Sunak's people to bury Boris once and for all. So what the likes of Nadine Doris um, and Alex Sharma and also Nigel Adams have, tra- have apparently threatened to do um, is to resign early um, um, ahead of the next election um, and, and trigger early by-elections um, um, by elections now, effectively, um, 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 you know, for the likes of Nadine Dorries before she took up a seat in, in, in the House of Lords or whatever, um, and that would force Rishi Sunak to fight by elections now that he would probably lose 
Mm. And, and of course, you know, to be a loser is uh, is a tag that can stick in politics. And if he lost three by elections that he wasn't expecting to fight in quick succession, um, effectively these three people would throw themselves onto the flames for Boris. Would damage Rishi Sunak. You know, mm. that tag of a loser would stick with him. And that I think is the thinking behind that. And that is a threat that's hanging over Rishi Sunak that that Boris Johnson's people will kick off. So, Mark, really, this is all about the leadership contest and Boris Johnson attempting to try and reassert his his presence within the party. Now, you've been over there a couple of months now. I think you've been there since January, you said. So um, mm. your feet well under the table. Like, you know, this is almost like Trump in America. Is there a realistic possibility that people would see Boris as the person who delivered Brexit for them, whatever way you look at it, um, and say, yeah, yeah, you know, he, he's worth the chance. Is, is, is that realistic? There's there's two schools of thought on it. One school of thought is that nobody ever wants to go near Boris Johnson ever again. Um, and and even Pretty Patel, one of his uh, one of his um, um, closest allies, she said publicly last week. She says, look, that it wouldn't do any good for us at all to put Boris Johnson back. But the other school of thought is that if the Conservatives lose the next election, which looks pretty likely, um, that Boris Johnson mightn't actually be a bad leader for them in opposition. Because, you know, when you're a leader of opposition, you, you have to say stuff all the time, mm. but you don't necessarily have to do a lot, <laughs> you know, um, and, and that might suit Boris Johnson. Um, and, and he wouldn't have actually any responsibility of money, you know, apart from, of course, running the party itself, but he wouldn't have any responsibility for running the country. And it might give him an outlet um, um, to rally the troops again and to reconnect with the public. Um, so, look, there are other people circling around, of course, who who, who, who would like the leadership of the Conservative Party if Rishi Sunak loses it, if they lose the next election. I mean, you have the likes of Suella Braverman, you have Kemi Badenoch, um, you would have had Dominic Raab, but of course he's gone now mm. um, because he was forced out over bullying complaints. So you have a lot of people circling around and positioning themselves to be the leaders of the right wing of the Tory party, which has really driven the party for the last for the last seven years since Brexit. Um, but it's in disarray now at the moment um, um, over various issues, and a lot of them are at each other's throats. So that's where we're back to again. Um, um, everything comes back to Tory infighting, I think. And that's what the big problem for Rishi Sunak at the moment is that the Tories, um, they're killing each other again. Um, and, 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 and the two months of unity that he had um, um, in, in March and April, all of that is gone and, and, and he's back with a divided party again. Mm. Just finally, Mark, um, on a broad, in a broader sense, I just get the sense from this remove that things are a little like toxic over there at the moment. You know, this right wing discussion, the GB news thing. Do you find that over there that it's all a bit, you know, sharper, uh, a bit more, I don't know what, vicious when it comes to politics than it is over here? Yeah, it, look, look, it certainly is. I mean, look, you have some very um, strong, rambunctious media outlets, the likes of the Daily Mail, which is like a political party all of its own, GB News, which is really beginning to assert itself, mm. actually, um, and the Telegraph, which um, um, in, in, in a sense is trying to fight off these other media outlets from its far, from its right flank. Um, so they all take their own approach. Yeah, the media over here is, is, is a lot more vituperative, I think, than the media in Ireland. Um, and as a result, the politicians who play up to various media outlets, um, they do in a much more vituperative fashion. I mean, I don't know, Mandy, if, you know, in, in, in your days around the world of politics, if you ever got a chance to sit in on PMQ's Prime Minister Questions, which happens at noon every Wednesday in the House of Commons. Um, but, I mean, it's like going into a glad gladiatorial theatre, you know? Yes. I mean, I mean, the shouting and the screaming and the roaring and the, the, uh, the, 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 the playing up for the cameras and the playing up for sound bites and, the, 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 you know, trying to say something extraordinary and damaging, but not necessarily very politically insightful. That's a real 
real feature of British politics at the moment. Um, and, and it's still, I would say it's still an unhappy place. And although it calmed down a little bit after all of the, 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 the nightmare at the end of Boris Johnson's regime and the beginning of Liz Truss's, um, um, I wouldn't say I think it's actually all that more healthy because the one thing that people don't want to talk about over here um, is Brexit. And um, mm. even the Labour Party doesn't want to talk about it. They think it's politically toxic. But Brexit is still the issue driving everything because Brexit um, is still driving the economy. Brexit issues are still driving immigration. Brexit issues actually are still driving inflation as well. Um, so I think they have their heads in, in, in the sand a little bit over here. The, the, Brexit for me is still the elephant in the room. And until the British body politic is prepared to grasp it, um, um, I think the problems are still going to continue. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it reminds me of that virus in The Last of Us. Like it's just so pervasive. It's everywhere and it's entangling. Well, look, Mark, we want to wish you well with your new posting and uh, we'd love to have you back at another time. That was Mark Paul, London correspondent of The Irish Times. Mark, thank you. Thank you, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Now, if you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can do so on takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks, as always, to all of today's guests and the contributors to the programme and also to the production team of John Fardy with Simon Keane and Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is going to be up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record, All Your Sunday Newspapers and much, much more. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.